0: Well, hello. You know, if, if you go speak at places, uh, mainly um, churches, um, how things are handed to you is important. The atmosphere and uh, how you feel in your, in your soul. And every time I come here, the worship here is really good. And what I mean by that is it's heartfelt, and you can feel it. And so I just want to thank them for kind of giving me a yellow brick road into Oz. I have a couple books. I want to get this out of the way. These are new. Um, The first one is gumnazo, which is a very strange word. But in the New Testament, when Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, but rather train yourself to be godly. The word train is the Greek word gumnazo. And uh, it actually comes from the old Greek games when they used to actually do the games in the nude. And so I entitled the book, Gumnazo, Lessons in Fighting Naked. Um, a Guidebook on Christian Living for the Young and Determined. So this is really about how to stop being a slave to your own problems and um, do something for God that's brilliant and fun. Uh, so that's out there. Um, the books are $10 each and two for 15 This is the sweet spot why finding your niche changes everything. It just gives you some insight on how to capitalize on who you already are and then use that in order to do something in this world that makes a difference. Um, so, pretty fun little, little books. Okay, now, um, my goal here today is to help you. And I want to help you rethink and retranslate some things. Um, I know what this series is on, and about work. And as Daryl said, I I did pastor for about four years, and then I traveled and taught in the church for you know a few more. Um, the pastoring thing I absolutely did not like. Um, I don't know what it was, but it, it wasn't who I was. It's what I did, but it wasn't who I was. Um, and so, you know, I did, I did what I could with it, and uh, it was okay. Um, but you know when you're done with something, like, thank God. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it was like. That's a sign, by the way, to stop it. <laughs> okay? Uh, I'll tell you what. It's great to know who you are, but it's greater to know who you're not. Because now you're not wasting my time or God's. Right? So know who you're not, and you'll, you'll do far better than knowing who you are. Okay, um, I want to talk to you about story today, and I've got a couple stories out of the Bible that we're going to incorporate into this lesson, and it's about the story of your life. We all have a story, and most of us would like to have lived a great story, but few people like the work that it takes to have a great story. Work. It takes work to have a great story. There's a man who does a seminar twice a year, once in LA and another time in New York. His name's Robert McKee. And he does this story seminar. He's been doing it for over 25 years. He's had 50,000 people attend and it's a 36 hour course on story with a lunch break. So 12 hours a day for three days with lunch for $850. And it's sold out every, every time. And the people that attend are screenwriters and songwriters and book writers Actors, because they want to know about story. And here's what they found about story. Story is this, a character who wants something and has to overcome conflict in order to get it. That's what makes a great story. A character who wants something and has to overcome conflict in order to get it. Now, we're all living a story, and it's either a good one or it's a bad one. It's like marriage. It's either heaven or hell. <laughs> it's, it's hell if it's in between. So what's your story? And when I say story, I'm talking about your life and how it's incorporating itself in this earth in connection with other human beings. And what are you doing most of your day? Well, you're probably at the job site, whatever that is, or the office, or something to that sort, or you're at your job at home with a bunch of wild Indians. But either way, you're working, you're living, and you're interacting with other human beings for a reason. Now, the biggest mistake the church has made in America is to call this ministry and that laity. Okay, because I did the ministry and now I'm working and doing the ministry. So here's what I've realized. Pastoring's a job description. I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. I'm a cameraman. I'm an artist. I'm a pastor. But you see, we've messed it all up because I don't go up to you and say, how you doing, plumber Bob? How you doing, electrician Dave? How you doing, Pastor Darrell? See, what ends up happening is we put Daryl in a place he was never meant to be. He's just a goon just like you. (laughs) But when we look at him, we don't see him like that because the whole system is designed to look like something that it actually isn't. The job of the fivefold gift ministry in the church is to train everybody else to do the work of the ministry. It doesn't mean serve tables and take up the offerings. It means cut people's grass. It means take people's blood at the hospital. It means wire somebody's house. It means teach children in school. It means consult corporations all over the world. It means all kinds of things. And you either do it as a servant or a mercenary. When you do it as a servant, it's ministry. Okay? So I'm talking to you and your life in the world as ministers of the good news of the gospel. Are you a thermostat or are you a thermometer? Well, Steve, what's the difference? Thermometers check the temperature and then criticize it. Man, is it cold in here. But a thermostat measures the temperature and then changes it. You see, when you're at work, you're either criticizing it You're criticizing your work, or you're creating something new in your work. You measure that temperature like a thermometer, but because you're a thermostat, you begin to regulate it. So when somebody comes to you and says, boy, is that boss a jerk or what? You're like, I know what you mean. Or are you trying to change that kind of an attitude in the place that you're working? Because how you do anything affects your story. Now, I'm gonna be a little blunt. It's hard for me, but that's what we're gonna do. If your life stinks, is boring and predictable, and it makes you tired, you're not living a good story. You know, they found out that kids that run away from home and couples that divorce, it's because somebody wants a new story. They don't like the story they're living. They want another one because it's boring. It's predictable. It's awful in some way. You see, the problem is, in order to have a good story, you have to have a good crisis. And you have to overcome it and win. The greatest story ever told is about a character named Jesus who wanted the world and had to die to get it. That's the greatest story ever told. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict in order to get it. Luke Skywalker, a character who's living a very boring story. Wearing a dirty karate suit on a desert planet, working for his maniac uncle who doesn't even like him, <laughs> drinking blue milk. And what happens? There's a crisis, and his whole family is killed. And he looks at Obi Wan Kenobi and he says, I want to go with you to Alderaan. And now he's in a story. Now he's in a story. And as you watch that series, the story unfolds. Many of us watch life, but we don't play life. We stay out of the story. And God wants you right smack dab in the middle of the story. Here's an interesting thing about the word crisis. In Hebrew, mashber. It actually is related to the word birthing stool. Birthing stool, where ancient women used to sit in order to give birth. A crisis is your opportunity to birth something into this world through your life. It's an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. Now, I have the authority to talk about this because I've had my share of crises. I've got plenty of stories. They're on the tape from two years ago. So you can pull that up and listen to it from here. Isaiah 26, 18. I'm going to start with verse 16. And it says, Lord, they came to you in their distress. We're talking about Israel. Verse 18, we were with child, they were on the birthing stool, crisis. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We brought no salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. What does that mean? It means their crisis was meaningless. Another translation says, we too writhe in agony, but nothing comes of our suffering. We have not given salvation to the earth. We have not brought life into the world. Discontented Christian people live boring, unproductive, risk-adverse lives. They avoid conflict. They run from conflict and they blame conflict on the Satan. The devil's really getting after me. Well wait a minute. I've been watching you for two days and actually you deserve it. You know people like that. We avoid conflict. We're risk adverse When we're at work, we don't capitalize on opportunity. We shy away from it when it comes to being an example and a representative of God in the earth. We look for purpose here in church. We come here for purpose and direction. We look for purpose within our faith circles and our home groups in places like that, rather than attending a building with people of like precious faith where God sets an individual in there to help us unfold commands for war in the earth and then go out and enact it where we live every day all the time. So that's what has to change. The general rule in creating stories is that characters don't want to change. They don't want to change. They talk about change, but they don't want to change. The great, late Edwin Lewis Cole used to say, change isn't change until it's changed. That's like a real revelation, but it's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Change isn't change until it's changed. So characters don't want to change. They have to be forced to change like Luke. They have to be forced to change by an inciting incident. That's what the Hollywood people call it. An inciting incident. A character needs an inciting incident Something in life that happens that knocks them flat down, and that inciting incident forces them to change. Go to Joshua chapter 2 in your Bible. Without inciting incidents that disrupt our comfort, we will not enter into story. We will not enter into story. And how many of you have had an inciting incident? It created a crisis. You capitalized on it and overcame it. And it created a great story. See, our life is about a great story. When people talk about you at work, They should be like, that guy's got a great story. That girl has an awesome story. Have you heard her story? We all have opportunities for stories, but we don't always take them. So the inciting incident forces you to move. Great stories only go to those who don't give in to fear. I was, I mean, I'm not educated. I'm going to tell you that right now. I went to uh, Bible school, but it was like an unaccredited faith school, so I guess it was Sunday school that was really long. (laughs) Okay. So now I'm like this corporate consultant. I'm traveling to Switzerland to talk to a bunch of managers from all over the planet, if you can imagine such a thing. And how I got there, I don't know. I'm sitting in first class going, how did I get here? What is going on here? You talk about being nervous. And I get there and I'm dealing with the CEO of a $2 billion company, that's billion with a B. And we're riding in a Mercedes stretch and I'm in the back seat like I'm the president. We just come from like a thousand dollar meal at some fancy restaurant in Switzerland And I'm going to be speaking in the morning to all his leaders at this corporate event at their headquarters in Switzerland. And he, for some reason, I mean, this guy was creepy. I mean, the way he looked at you, all he needed was the SS uniform. Okay? This German Swiss guy that's just Ruthless because you don't run a two billion dollar organization without being kind of a jerk Okay, and he turns around in his seat and he looks at me and he goes so What's your education? Now what would you do? (laughs) That's what happened. Is that a crisis? because he's paying me a lot of money. Plus, he sent me first class from America. And what am I going to tell him? Sunday school. (laughs) So this was a real opportunity to capitalize on a crisis by being honest. And I just looked at him without missing a beat, and I said, oh, I don't have one. And he went, That's what I like, a self-made man. (laughs) (laughs) Honesty is the best policy. The most important decisions we will ever make require risk, high visibility, vulnerability, and ruthless trust. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Rahab is a prostitute. That's her job. Prostitutes before Christ, it was a dirty job. She was not living a good story. She did not have a good story. She didn't have a good story to tell. She didn't have a good story to live. And through this particular story we see in Joshua, skip down to verse 11, talking about the spies, Israel, their God, and how Jericho received word that they were coming and they wanted the land. And in verse 11, she says, When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you family. Prostitutes don't have husbands and kids. But as we read later on, we find out it was her parents and her brothers and her sisters. Now, my question is, where were they when she's prostituting herself out in the gutter? Well, they're not around, but yet she is thinking of their future. She doesn't have a future. She doesn't have a present. And she's thinking of them. And so there's a story unfolds. They end up coming back, and they spare her because she saves the spies. She hides the spies. She thwarts the enemy so they don't know where they are, and then gives them instructions on how to get out of Jericho safely and get back home before they come and invade the country. The prostitute did all this. And so, when they come, her family is saved. So now, she risks everything. She's thrown into this story through an inciting incident of the very people the king of Jericho is after is in her living room. That's an inciting incident. Because if she gets found out, guess what? She's finished. They come to her house. We know they're in here. We saw them go in. And she hides them and acts stupid. They went that way. Risking everything. But you see, because of this crisis, because of this inciting incident, she enters a story. And now everything changes. She wasn't saving her future, she was creating it. She marries a man named Salmone, who gives birth to a child named Boaz, who marries Ruth the Moabitess, and they have a son named Obed, who gets married and has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And if you keep going, a son comes named Joseph, who marries a little girl named Mary. Rahab's one decision changed the world. She was living a bad story, capitalized on an inciting incident at work. And changed the earth. You see, she didn't look at them and go, I don't want to get involved in this stuff. She got involved, it created a story, and it changed the world. We have to get involved, folks. We can't sit on the sidelines and watch other people's stories and come here and sit in a pew and, like, oh, praise the Lord for your story we got to have our own story that's fascinating and fun and adventurous. Living with God's supposed to be an adventure. Being a Christian is supposed to be awesome. It's supposed to be cool. You're supposed to be the underdog in the story. That's the way it's supposed to be. But because of the culture we're in and the way the world is working right now, It's caused us to not want to take the opportunities up. I got an email once, not too long ago actually, from this lady, right before I moved to Dallas. And she said, she sent me this email and said, do you have any scriptures I could give to my dad? He's in the hospital in a coma. So I I read the email and I'm like, yeah, I get some verses for that you can say in the hospital room with your family, whoever's there. And I'm starting to type out you know, some references of verses that have to do with maybe tragedy or something like that. And the Holy Spirit just, you know how he interrupts you when you're trying to do email? And he's like, why don't you just go there? And I'm kidding you. I'm, I mean, I'm not kidding you. My first thought was, Too much traffic. (laughs) I'm thinking of driving into Boston. And it's like, I don't want to drive into Boston. And what, they can't pray? Huh? And I'm going through all this, like trying not to get into the incident. Okay, that's not a big crisis, all right? But it's 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 a tiny, tiny traffic crisis. And I'm still trying to avoid it. Because I don't want crisis. I don't want to connect. I want to communicate. Connecting takes too much energy, mental energy. But you know, when the Holy Spirit speaks, people listen. So that's what I did. And I typed back, I'm coming in. No way. Are you kidding me? I'm coming in. I work for me. I can leave. I'll come in. So I did. I drove in. I get there, and he's in the bed, tubes, pale. I thought, looked dead. He looked dead to me. He was in his 70s, alcoholic his whole life. Not the best relationship in the world with him and his daughter, who, who emailed me. And they're in there, kind of five people maybe, gathered on the a bed. There's a little Bible open on one of those metal trays. They didn't know where to look. And I looked down and his foot's hanging out from underneath the sheet and it was like white. Like E.T. in that movie when he was all white and gross looking. Not something you want to touch. I thought of touching it. (laughs) Then denied it. I didn't want to blame Satan because I don't like white feet. But I'm sitting there, standing there, and I said, well, let's pray. And we, we all held hands. And I said, Father, just send your Holy Spirit right now. And then the guy sits up. <laughs> Everybody starts crying. And my God, oh my God, he's moving. Oh my God, it's a miracle. Oh. And I'm, you know, I'm like, what? And I'm looking at him and, you know, he's, uh, he still, like, closed, his, his eyes are closed. So I'm like, no, he's still comatose, but he's, he's trying to get up, it looks like. It's crazy. So I finished praying, and he kind of calmed back down, and he was kind of jerking a little bit and moving. Now, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out something's going on here. So I was there maybe 40 minutes, and I had to get back to work, and I left. The next morning, his fever breaks, which is why they put him in a coma, because his fever was so high, they thought it was going to boil his brains, and um, they couldn't get it down. And uh, he gets up the next morning, he's like, breaks fever, and starts getting well, they bring him out of the coma, he's eating, and then he goes home. He was like at death's threshold, and now he goes home. And his daughter, the one that emailed me originally, she tells him the story, and he gives his life to Jesus. Now, I could have sent an email and put a couple of verses in there and didn't get involved, or I could create a great story. (coughs) Stories are created, and they're created because you do something that you don't want to do usually, but you do it anyway and it creates a great story. David, in the Bible, had a destiny, but it wasn't handed to him. He had to seize it, just like you, and he did. And in 1 Samuel 16, We see David in Bethlehem tending his father's sheep. You know, that was David's job. He was a shepherd. He did that for work. And he was faithful in Bethlehem. David's life unfolds through a series of amazing events and places which are really symbolic of our own lives because the whole Old Testament is a symbol. Although it was natural occurrences in the life of God's covenant people Israel, it is an example for the people in the New Testament because Paul says it was an example for us. So we can look at those stories and see patterns and principles that if applied can become keys that unlock life and great stories in your own life. So when you see David, he's keeping the sheep, he's doing these natural things, and he's good at it. He's also like the army water boy. So he goes up to the front lines and brings some cheese and stuff, you know, for the people fighting, the Philistines. And he gets up there, if you want to look at it in 1 Samuel 16. He gets up to uh, 17, actually. He gets up there. This is such a great chapter. You should read it a lot. It says, verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, the firstborn, he lists them and so forth. Jesse said to his son David, take this ephaph roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and your brothers and hurry to their camp Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. Boring. David's got a boring story. Early in the morning, verse 20, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. Verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of supplies. See how faithful David is in just simple things? Very faithful. He doesn't leave his bike in the driveway. He he makes sure things are right. Very faithful. As he was talking with them, verse 23, he's on the front lines. He's kind of yucking it up with his brothers. Must be cool being out here wearing armor and stuff. He's a shepherd. Now you've got to remember something about David. When Samuel came to Jesse, he's like, you get any kids? Yeah. He brings out everybody except David. I mean, imagine some important person coming to your house and talking to your parents and you're kind of in the back room. Oh my gosh, look who's here. So do you have any children? Yeah, brings everybody out but you. So you got to put yourself in the story. Not a good story. But David's here. He's talking with them, verse 23. And then this guy, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, that's a bad sign, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. Here's the great part right here. Here's where David starts entering his story. And David heard it. Now, you've got to picture David. He's a kid, he's a kid, he's a boy. And Goliath's doing this every day. You bunch of losers. I mean, this kind of stuff, taunting, making fun of them, and they're all like going, what do we do now? This is what everybody's doing. And here comes boring David with the boring story. And there comes the inciting incident. And David says, what did he just say? He didn't say what I think he said, did he? And you can—you got to get in a story. Update it. You're thinking, what are you going to do about it, Burger King boy? And David kills him. The inciting incident sets David into motion, into a story that takes him from Bethlehem to Adullam to Hebron to Zion, the city of David. His destiny begins with an insurmountable task, and he throws off his coat and goes, what did you call me? I may be little, but my God, to him, you're just a booger. That's how David thought. So in Bethlehem, he's faithful with all these natural, simple things, minding his business, doing what he's told, and an exciting incident takes place. And then David risks it all. He throws everything on the table and says, nobody talks to my God like that. And he takes off his head. And then David gets another inciting incident. It makes Saul jealous. Because remember all the women dancing in the streets? Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. (laughs) Okay, that's not a good song, if you're the king. Is David killing tens of thousands on purpose? No, David just doesn't turn down crisis. Because he knows who's on his side. And so he gets to this cave of Adullam. He's running for his life. Saul's trying to kill him. He's after him. And 400 people show up at the cave. Where's David? Is David around here? And guess who they're led by? Dear old dad and the brothers that didn't think he was worth bringing out into the family room when, Saul sh- when uh, Samuel showed up. That's who shows up at the cave. Will you be our captain? Please. Why? Because David's in a great story and their story isn't that great. And they want a story like his. They're going to ride on his story. So what does David do? Believe it or not, this is an inciting incident because he has to put down his pride and all the feelings of rejection that he had and say, yeah, I'll take care of you. I'll help you. Not, you joking after what you did? You see? He's up for it again. And nobody out of those 400 people are committed to his welfare. Just like Jesus. They follow Jesus for the food, and they follow him for the protection. Initially, After Adullam's cave, he ends up in Hebron, which is like the highest place in a chain of mountains in the Jerusalem area. It's like 3,000 feet up, and it's like rocky. It's a hard place to get to, but it represents a place of covenant. It represents a place of relationship. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried there. And he goes there, and all of a sudden, people start being added to David. David at this point in his life. People that are going to do something for him because he's done something for others. This is the place of Hebron. It's the highest place you can ever be. It's the place of covenant and relationship. And what happens is, the mighty men, thousands and thousands of people are flocking to David to want to fight with and for him. They risked their lives, create their own inciting incidents in order just to get him water from the gate of Bethlehem, which is what the mighty men did. They broke through the enemy lines and scooped a scoop of water and ran back to David and said, "Go! what the heck's wrong with you guys? You're all bloody. Where have you been? Oh, we just fought through the the lines got you some water from the gate of Bethlehem because 20 minutes ago you said, oh, I wish I had a drink of water from the gate of Bethlehem. That's the kind of people that are surrounding David now. Why? You can't get to Hebron unless you go to Adullam first. How many of you are in your job and you're like, I hate this job, I want to get to another job, but you don't serve or do anything in that job and you think you're going to get to the Hebron job? What do you want, crack? Uh-uh. You have to embrace where you are now. Did you know 85% of the people working are waiting for their dream job in America? And I keep wondering, what do you think it's going to like pull in your driveway? You know, they don't move from where they are. Basically, the number one reason why people don't move out of a job they don't like is security. Security. Their faith is in the job they hate. That's where they're putting all their effort, energy, and faith, and time, and ambition into something they don't even like. So you can imagine how limited that ambition is. How limited that, that is. How they're so not even close to their full potential. But yet they stay there. In mediocrity, not liking it. Now, I can talk about this, because anytime I was ever in a job and I got to a place I didn't like, I quit, whether I had one or not. I just was up for crisis. And God always stepped in. Now, I wasn't being stupid. I would pray. I would talk to God. I would tell him. I would hash this stuff out. And when I entered the consulting world, I left the painting world. I was a house painter. Imagine me telling that to the guy in the Mercedes. I painted a deck. But I did. But while I was painting decks, over a period of 20 years, I put 14,000 hours into reading my Bible. So I was doing something. And I was able to capitalize on the patterns and the principles that I've learned through God's Word in the corporate world. It's something I already had. School, smool. I've been to school. I've been reading the best book in the world for 20 years. It's got to matter for something, right? Like the time I told the president of a corporation because he wanted to throw his sister out of the organization... I said putting somebody else's candle out is never going to light yours. Anyone, excuse me? I said putting out somebody else's candle is not going to light yours. He looks over at the vice president and he goes, well, "What do I do?" he says to me. I'm like, "I thought this consulting thing was going to be like hard. What do I do?" Stop it. <laughs> Want me to get my nine-year-old? He'll tell you that. What? I said, because if you don't, you're going to have more trouble on your hands than you care to deal with. Because your sister carries, it's a little knife, but it goes deep. Because I knew her profile. Well, they didn't Listen. And a year later, they call me up, almost in tears. She's suing the company. Help us. Ah. You were right. Ever since that day, now eight years running, they call me when they're in crisis. The guy that painted decks, Because I tell them the truth. They had an employee that was losing his home and they thought he was suicidal. They called me up, said, come in here and talk to this kid. I don't know what it is about you, but I know you'll know what to do. Just bill us, I don't care what it is. Help this guy, please. It's like being paid to do home group under the guise of corporate consulting. But you see, you have to take advantage of these inciting incidents. You have to step in and know that we've got something. We can contribute. You know what the word contribute comes from? It comes from the word tributary. A tributary. Okay, what is a tributary? Well, for those of you that have been to high school, you probably learned about tributaries in the most boring class in the world. A tributary is when water or rivers flow into others or another body of water. Well, that's interesting. Jesus was like a tributary expert. Remember John chapter seven, verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight. On that day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried with a loud voice, saying, "He that come unto me, da 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 da. Remember that out of his belly shall flow, or he that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water." Tributaries, contributory, contribute. The Holy Spirit is on you so you can contribute, not so you can go, oh my gosh, it's awesome. It's so you can contribute, Terry. Ezekiel chapter 47 Ezekiel has this vision of the temple, which is a picture of the church in case you think a town's going to drop out of the sky. And he says, there came a river out of the temple and it flowed down to the valley which was towards the sea which if you look at that more closely it's the Dead Sea. The river comes out of the temple and flows to the Dead Sea. This is not a dead sea. You don't flow in this direction. You flow in that direction. The living water is supposed to be going to the dead water. And when it gets to the Dead Sea, it says everything in that sea became alive. Now, the Dead Sea is salty. It's so salty, you can't drown in it. Matter of fact, you may be able to walk on it. It's, it creates such a buoyancy because of the salt content. And if you took a big gulp of that, it puts you in the hospital. It's disgusting. Like where you work. Some of you. And so, it says, everything the water touches comes to life. That's what this whole thing was about. And in the first century, the dam broke on the day of Pentecost. The dam broke and the waters rushed throughout all the cities of Jerusalem and the roundabout area. And everything it touched had the potential, if they were up for the inciting incident of coming contact with that river, would be changed forever. You have to look at your job as the biggest opportunity you've got for being a Christian. Now, here's where we have some issues. We have our own Christian language, our own Christian clothes, and our own Christian ideas... And we get into the work world in the world where it's all F-bombs, lying, cheating on their mates, and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, ew. They're doing what most of us only think about. Okay, this is what's happening out there. And what are we to do? We are to come in direct contact with it. I was at a corporate event in Colorado and they invited me to their big shindig. It was in an old church that was converted into this huge club, an old stone church, like from really old. And they had the logo of the company made up of tequila shots. And everybody's dressed up in these crazy 80s costumes. And they have a band, and the guy's got this 80s hair, this big, and they're doing all the Michael Jackson songs. And everybody's writhing on the floors and having a good time. And I'm in there (laughs) looking for opportunity, looking for conversation. And that company invites me out just a few months ago to their headquarters. Their brand new building now. They're up 50% every year. They hired 100 people last year. And every time they make a decision on a leader, they call me. The guy that painted decks. Because Jesus is in me. His word is in me. The principles of his kingdom are in me. And I'm not afraid to say, say them. And he puts me with this new leader they got in this office, all glass walls in this office. I'm sitting there talking to her. And I swear to you, it was like the Holy Spirit came on me and I began to prophesy. And I looked at her numbers, her chart, because I'm a profiler and I get some numbers after they answer some questions. I look at these numbers and I tell her, you know, with your graph, odds are good. You know, you've had two husbands? Yeah, yeah. I just got divorced from the second one, and I'm only in my early 30s. Something's wrong. I said, yeah, something is wrong. Do you want to change it? This is me in the corporate company with one of their new leaders, and I'm talking about her marriage and her dysfunctional life and how she has problems with men. CEO can see me in there because it's all glass, and he's looking over, and I'm like... And her eyes start flooding up and she starts going like this and she stands up and walks over to the window she goes, this is kind of scary. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to do things with you all the time, wherever you are, if you're up for it. All the time, wherever you are, if you're up for it. I had this lady one time I had to work with mean, 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 scary mean. And I looked at her and I don't know what happened, but I just said it. I said, You're an alligator with a heart of flesh. And she went, What? And I thought, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I said, you have a tough exterior, but there's something down in there that's soft and pliable that God wants to do something with. And she immediately breaks down, bawling like a baby. And I was able to pray for her. And then she's like, I need to go to church. I used to go, I don't know why. It's all coming out because the Holy Spirit's doing a bubble bath. I mean, God's doing something. But it was an inciting incident that got capitalized on. You have to capitalize on these inciting incidents or you're going to live a boring story. Let's finish this. Wow, really, I'm almost done. Last page. Between Adulam's cave and the mountain of Hebron, there's a change in the people. Remember we, we, back there, we talked a little about that. They become more responsible. We've misinterpreted the word responsible. Do you know what responsible means? Able to respond. Response. Able. are you responsible when there's an inciting incident in your life or around you at work or are you like like that what do you do responsible people are able to respond to anything and they do And when you do it in faith, in vulnerability, and in authenticity, God shows up. And if he doesn't, he'll clean it up. Remember what the three Hebrews said in Daniel? And even if he doesn't show up, we're still not doing it. They didn't care if you showed up or not. It was wrong. God's eternal purpose will jeopardize your reputation, your reasoning, and your resolution. God's eternal purpose for you will place in jeopardy those things you hold dear. God's eternal purpose for you can be the hinging point through an inciting incident of a good story and a bad one. Christians are like tea bags, they are not worth a thing until there's hot water. I had a job years ago that, I mean, I liked it because I was good at it, but I didn't like it because I knew it wasn't everything I was meant to do. You ever been there? You just know that this ain't it. It's good. It's helping. It's not it. And if you're not careful, you won't like it. And if you're even more uncareful, you'll start criticizing it. You'll start wishing you had something different, wishing you were somewhere else, that kind of a thing. And you start... Basically saying, God, I don't like how you're taking care of me right now. That's what it turns into. Or, how come I can't be like Pastor Daryl? Well, if I'm not mistaken, when I read the Bible, especially in the Corinthian letters, it says, God has placed each member in the body as it has pleased him. You see, you got to be pleased with what he's pleased with, or this ain't going to work. So you know what I did? I created my own inciting incident. I spoke to the pastor before church and said, can I say something today? He's like, sure. So like, I don't know when it was in this service, he let me, and I went up on the stage in front of the whole church, and I put my arms out like this, and I said, I'm making a confession. I love my job. I thank God for my job. And I want to be a painter because it's what God's given me. And everybody clapped. You know what happened? I changed the name of the company after that. I came up with a concept called Dreamcoat. I changed the name to Dreamcoat Corporation. I incorporated it. I tripled my income nearly. And then God moved me into the consulting business and I took a very functional household name business in the entire South Shore of Massachusetts and gave it to somebody who was a painter but was trying to start out. Just gave them the whole business. And went into consulting. As soon as I embraced it, as soon as I thanked God for it, and as soon as I started loving where I was instead of criticizing where I was, As soon as I embraced it with everything I had because it's what God was doing and I had to wake up to the fact that he's a little bit smarter than I am. As soon as I did that, it went nuts. And then he said, give it away. Remember Moses? I kind of like looking at the backside of a sheep. After all, it's been 40 years. I'm kind of getting used to this. Thank you, Lord. And then what happens? Uh, Moses? Yeah? I know you like it now, but unfortunately, that's going to qualify you for an inciting incident. (laughs) It will. Yeah, it's called like kind of helping six million people out of the desert. It is. Yeah. I can't talk. I know. That's why I'm sending Aaron. He was up for the inciting incident, and he risked it all. And Moses enters a story. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now that every one of these people will see their lives as a story that has potential to unfold, to be second to none. In their work, in their family, wherever they are, And I pray that the word today, whatever hay among the sticks there is that's edible, they will eat it and act on it. And they will begin to open their eyes and look for inciting incidents. They will look for opportunities for risk, vulnerability, and ruthless trust. And in so doing they can capitalize on what you've been trying to do in this world for years, which is just simply love it. Give them the courage, the faith, and the tenacity to come out from among a group, a corporate group of people that are content and be discontented with everything that is, embracing everything that can be, because Father, you are with them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.